Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, a podcast sharing live constitutional conversations held by the NCC. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, which is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. During these challenging times, increasing awareness and understanding of the Constitution is more urgently important than ever so that we can learn together in order to form a more perfect union. It is central to the National Constitution Center's mission to convene discussions like the one we held last Friday, a national town hall discussion about policing, protests, and the Constitution. We'll share that town hall today with you in two parts. Part one is my conversation with former Chief Judge Theodore McKee of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Part two features some of America's most distinguished scholars on policing, protests, and the Constitution. Professor Monica Bell of Yale Law School, David French, the writer and constitutional lawyer, Janae Nelson of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and Professor Ted Shaw of the University of North Carolina. The Constitution Center will be convening more of these town hall discussions in the weeks ahead. Thank you for learning with us and for tuning in to learn more in the weeks ahead. It is an honor to welcome all of you to our town hall. Let's begin with this question of qualified immunity for police officers. There's so many questions about it. There are bills pending in Congress to reform it. What I want to put on the table is how precisely it evolved. Monica, tell us what the Ku Klux Klan Act after Reconstruction said about uh, how citizens could sue for violations of their constitutional rights and how the Supreme Court more recently developed and expanded this notion of qualified immunity that's controversial today. Yeah, so I'm actually going to defer to another panelist to talk a little bit more about that doctrinal history. Um, uh, But one of the things I think is really important to just kind of put on the table, and I'm picking up here a little bit from the previous conversation, I think what what we see in the conversation about qualified immunity is is a desire to sort of do post hoc um, accountability for specific police officers. And one of the things that I think is super important to have on the table in our conversation about the role of the Constitution in this protest is a much more sense of collective accountability and pre kind of earlier ways of thinking about the notion of accountability in policing. So that's something I want to get to before we kind of, I just want to put on the table as something to discuss later as other panelists talk about the kind of doctrinal points on qualified immunity. That's so powerful. And you've written so importantly about notions of how the police can maintain legitimacy in communities and look forward to digging into all of that as well. David French, you've recently, and actually not so recently too, about a year ago, written uh, pieces saying end qualified immunity. There are bills pending in Congress. They have bipartisan sponsorship, uh, ranging from Democrats to Justin Amash. And remarkably, on the Supreme Court right now, justices ranging from Justice Sonia Sotomayor to Justice Clarence Thomas have called for re-examining the idea of qualified immunity on the grounds that it is not rooted in the text or original understanding of the relevant statutes. Can you really help us understand where the doctrine came from, how it expanded, and why it should be reformed? 
So you had the, since 1871, federal law has permitted Americans to file lawsuits against public officials who violate their constitutional rights. And the statutory language here is, is really clear. Uh, it says, every person who under color of any statute, ordinance, regulation, custom usage, etc., um, or causes subjects or causes to be subjected any citizen of the United States or other person within the jurisdiction thereof to the deprivations of rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws shall be liable to the party injured in an action at law. In other words, let's just put that in non-legalese. If your rights are violated, you have a right to sue and recover damages. It's crystal clear. Well, for a while, uh, that there was no doctrine of qualified immunity that came out of that statute because the statute's very, very clear. But there began to emerge some sort of common law, good faith defenses. But then in 1982, uh, in a case called Harlow v. Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court really concocted, I mean, just made up the, the modern doctrine of qualified immunity. And, and what the doctrine said is that you had to prove that the public official who violated your rights was violating a clearly established statutory or constitutional right of which a reasonable person would have known. Well, what's clearly established? I mean, you'd think the First Amendment's clearly established, the Fourth Amendment is clearly established, but no, what they meant was, and, and uh, the judge before earlier said, said this you know, quite well, you, essentially what you have to find is a case very similar to your case in a court of controlling jurisdiction to and say, see, this was just adjudicated to be unlawful. This happened to me. And so therefore, I can recover damages. And how close does the case have to be? I'll give you an example from a cert petition that's pending before the Supreme Court right now. And that is there's a case not far from where I live in Tennessee involving a man who was arrested and he surrendered and he was sitting up and he, he was obviously in surrendering and a police dog was sicked on him and attacked him and sent him to the ER. So he filed a lawsuit over the, the use of the police dog and there was a qualified immunity ruling because the only previous case law in regarding the police, a police dog involved someone who was lying down, not somebody who was sitting up in a posture of surrender. What? I mean, you have to get that precise. And so uh, this is going to be an interesting, I, I, there are multiple cert petitions pending. Um, this is going to be very interesting because if you're a textualist, as many of the uh, GOP, uh, you know, the, the Republican nominees are, if you're a textualist, where is qualified immunity in the text? Um, if you're an institutionalist, as some of them are, they take a look at it and they say, well, wait a minute, what will ending qualified immunity do to the institution of the police and the, and the government and, and such a dramatic change coming from the court? Well, the dramatic change from the court was Harlow v. Fitzgerald in 1982. Uh, so that's sort of the, the, the legal posture. And it's one of the reasons why you have this alliance uh, between uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas on this issue. Justice Thomas is a textualist and he's going to look at that and he's going to say, I don't see qualified immunity in there. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Thanks for that really uh, helpful summary. Thanks for calling out Harlow versus Fitzgerald. But it's very important to learn that that was a 1982 case that in the view of Justices Thomas and Sotomayor deviate from the text of the relevant statute. And thank you also, David, for calling our attention to this lawsuit that the court is now being asked to 
Consider the Washington Post yesterday wrote Supreme Court asked to reconsider immunity available to police accused of brutality and cites to the brief of the Libertarian Cato Institute, which is one of the groups on all sides of the spectrum that have urged the court to revisit the issue, writing that Mr. Floyd's death while in the custody of police officers shows the perversity of the court's rulings on qualified immunity. One federal judge has called the coalition of organizations on the left, right, and middle perhaps the most diverse amici, that means group of friends of the court, ever assembled. Janae Nelson, tell us about cases that LDF is involved with involving qualified immunity and, and tell us more about these bills that are pending in Congress to reform it. How and why should it be reformed? Thanks for that question. As you already noted, uh, this is a very interesting area of criminal justice that has brought together a cross-ideological alliance. The Legal Defense Fund has contributed to briefs along with the Cato Institute, which is not the most common occurrence, but the prayer that we coalesce around is the fact that providing zero tolerance uh, or to, to any accountability for police officers leads to the type of uprising uh, that we are seeing today, when there is no accountability in the legal system for those who enforce the laws or who we charge with the duty of enforcing the laws, that can lead to an entire breakdown and disintegration of the trust between communities and those who are sworn to protect and serve them. So there are bills uh, pending in Congress to uh, really try to push back on the common law doctrine that has developed in courts over decades. As, as David pointed out, that was not the text of the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, but it evolved over years through cases like Pearson versus Ray uh, and, and the cases uh, uh, that, that David cited, uh, all the way up to uh, the challenge that we see in circuit courts now where there's no uniformity in how to interpret Section 1983 when it comes to police immunity, that we are literally splitting hairs on facts when it comes to whether officers understand that there is an established constitutional right uh, given the circumstances that, that lead to the particular charge. And, and as Judge McKee pointed out, in this context, we're talking about civil liability. There are also lots of concerns about the failures of the criminal system, of U.S. attorneys and district attorneys and grand juries having the courage uh, and, and the direction and the leadership from those who are sworn to do justice uh, to hold police officers to account in the criminal system. So when you have a failure of accountability in both the civil and criminal systems, you are encouraging a lawless set of law enforcement officers who can act with impunity. And I think that's what we saw when we looked at the horrifying tape and killing of George Floyd that we saw an officer with his hands in his pockets looking squarely into the camera of a crowd of people letting him know that he was actually kneeling the life out of an individual. And he continued with great assurance that he would likely not be prosecuted. And hopefully this is a case, this is one of the many cases of police violence where we will see a change in the will of the judiciary, uh, in the prosecutors, and in all who are involved in the criminal justice system who can bring justice to George Floyd and his family. Thank you for those powerful remarks. 
uh, and for reminding us that it's not just qualified immunity on the civil side, but also failures in the law of criminal accountability that are being discussed for reform. Ted Shaw, one of our friends, uh, asked, what is the pending federal legislation about qualified immunity? I'm just reading from the discussion of the bill sponsored by Senators Harris, Markey, and, and Booker. Their resolution calls for the elimination of qualified immunity for law enforcement officials. Professor Shaw, would elimination be the best solution? And perhaps you could also talk, in light of your long experience as head of LDF, about the need for reform on the criminal as well as the civil side. Uh, well, um, you know, obviously, qualified immunity, if it were eliminated, that would change the, the balance of how these cases uh, and instances of um, uh, alleged police misconduct and uh, that those that lead to the death of, uh, of African-Americans and others uh, and uh, those that don't lead to death, but nonetheless a, a significant injury. I mean, that would change it. Uh, all of us acknowledge and recognize that policing um, that's a difficult job. It's a dangerous job, and it requires split uh, uh, second decisions um, very often. Um, but having said that, uh, I think part of the problem, a big part of the problem is, is the nature of policing in this country and the nature of the relationships between uh, police departments and uh, black and brown communities. That nature uh, can be described um, not ironically, given what's happening in the moment, uh, often as an occupation. Uh, and it's an occupation that has been driven uh, in recent decades by the war on drugs, but it goes way back um, before that. So I wanted to get that out there. But I also wanted to say it's not just the doctrine of qualified immunity, which is tremendously important, um, but uh, uh, you know the law that governs racial discrimination uh, and the laws that particularly applied to police departments uh, go beyond qualified immunity. Uh, so for example, there are jurisprudential uh, standards that have been uh, applied, I think often gratuitously, uh, that make it more difficult to hold police departments accountable. I think about uh, uh, you know, Lions versus City of LA, 1982 case, ironically, since David correctly pointed to Harlow, uh, but a 1982 case which involved the use of a chokehold uh, on a black man um, who subsequently sued. I mean, he was injured because of the, uh, the chokehold, but the uh, Supreme Court held in Lions that, uh, that individuals, uh, that particular individual, but other individuals, don't have standing to sue uh, because they can't show they're going to be subjected to uh, the chokehold in the future. Um, so uh, standards or, or uh, uh, doctrines, I should say, like standing have been used to, uh, to blunt or make impossible um, reform of police departments driven by, uh, in part, these lawsuits um, by people who have been subjected to injury and harm. And so there's all kinds of doctrines. And then we go back to the, um, the standards uh, with respect to qualified immunity. They parallel the intent standard uh, that 
has been applied to the 14th Amendment over and over and over again. Uh, it pains me to say more often than not, um, the Constitution has been interpreted in ways uh, that have betrayed uh, the protections of uh, Black and other people of color uh, with respect to um, the protection of the laws. And so uh, this is much broader uh, than qualified immunity, although it's certainly about that. Uh, but it goes to the way the Constitution and the laws are interpreted uh, in general. Uh, they often betray uh, Black folks and people of color, even though um, our uh, understanding and our belief uh, is that it's the Constitution, it's the rule of law uh, that um, uh, we should turn to uh, rather than violence. Um, uh, to look for protections. Uh, the law hasn't always done well uh, in protecting black folks. I can say more often and not, sadly, uh, doctrinally, it hasn't. The law hasn't always done well in protecting black folks. Those are simple, but powerfully true words. And thanks to all of you for that really memorable first round of comments. Friends, the questions are just Remarkable. There are 151 of them. I'm going to suggest to our panelists, you might scroll through the Q&A box as we're talking. And if you see a question or two that you're especially moved to respond to, you can do that in the course of your answer. I'll just tee up a question for each of you. And if you want to pick up one of our friends' questions as well, that would be great. But Monica Bell, I mentioned at the beginning of your introduction this important article you wrote, Police Reform and the Dismantling of Legal Estrangement. In that article, you wrote that there's a um, theory uh, called the legitimacy theory, which emphasizes procedural justice, which gives officers an obligation to treat people with dignity and respect and be behave in a neutral, non-biased way. You argue that what you call legitimacy theory offers an incomplete diagnosis of a policing crisis. And instead you say what you call legal estrangement is a better lens through which scholars and policy officers can understand and respond to the current problems of policing. Tell us more about legal estrangement and why you think it's a more effective way of looking at our current crisis. Right. So I think uh, for decades now, we've framed the conversation around the relationship between black communities and the police as one of distrust without really looking at the actual content of, or asking the question, well, why should black communities trust the police? I mean, I think we've uh, kind of in our conversation about doctrine um, and the kind of trajectory of the law, we see that uh, the law has not protected black people most of the time. And um, on a larger scale, the law has been a really status quo type of influence. So when I think about qualified immunity and why we have it, one way to talk about it is the conversation about cases. Another way to talk about it is sociologically, why would the court think it is better to defer to police than to defer to the judgments of black communities about what is happening. And that's because um, the, the kind of courts play this sort of status quo role. And that's an example of legal estrangement. It's much more systemic than an individual police officer mistreated me or even killed someone. It's actually representative of a much more kind of collective memory, historical perspective on how the law has operated to exclude black 
Black people from the body politic. And now I think the conversations that are being had around reform are conversations that are much more structural. So what a legal estrangement perspective gets you is to focus less on how we train police officers on an individual level or even at a department level to be more trustworthy um, and to kind of like that sort of kind of direct interaction based um, framework, but instead to think how do we shift the role of policing in society? How do we make it so that courts don't defer to police claims instead of deferring to community claims? Um, these are the types of uh, perspectives you might get from a legal estrangement perspective. And I, um, I just want to make sure to get this in here. I think that's also um, kind of this legal estrangement issue is also a reason that the movement right now is not having the same conversation in general that we're having here today. So there's a division between constitutional and legal arguments about policing and the political arguments that are being had about policing. And that is um, that has increased over the past few decades. And I think it's a real tragedy. We have to start thinking about new ways of constitutionalism that move us beyond uh, the doctrine that comes from courts and instead looks to people to reinterpret what the Constitution's meaning is, realizing that, of course, uh, the enforceability of all that depends on our institutions, but thinking in a much more long-term way about how we change the interpretation of the Constitution. But th so that's that's some of the work I think is really important. Uh, and we've just posted your very important article, Police Reform and the Dismantling of Legal Estrangement, in the chat box along with some other crucial text. So friends, please make sure to read it after our discussion. David French, uh, Debbie Gatte asks, how should we think of the role of the police, the National Guard, and the military in situations of protests and riots? You, David, served in Iraq, you've been awarded for your bravery, but you and you've also expressed concern about the deployment of federal and military forces to suppress civilian protests. Tell us about what the law says about under what circumstances the president can federalize law enforcement and how you would analyze as a legal matter what has gone on with regard to the balance between federal and state enforcement over the past week or so. Boy, okay. I'll try to unpeel that onion quickly. Um, There's a lot to talk about. So as a constitutional matter, the president has inherent authority to put down an actual insurrection. I mean, this is something that is a, a constitutional principle that was um, solidified by actual practice when it came to Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, when in certain instances, when it came to suppressing segregationist uh, resistance to integration in the, in the South. Now, but the default is the Posse Comitatus Act, which says that federal uh, under troops under control of the president, under federal control, are prohibited from engaging in law enforcement activities unless otherwise specified by act of Congress. So when you see National Guard troops out, say, in New York or in my own, uh, you know, own area, Nashville, they are not under federal control. They are under the control of governors the state governors. At that point, a National Guardsman is more like a state militia than part of the federal, uh, than, the, than the U.S. Army. It's more of like, this is a state militia operating under state authority. 
Now, this is relatively common to see the National Guard come out under state authority when there is civil unrest. The huge controversy that was generate, began to generate uh, was when, when two things happening around the same time. One, Donald Trump threatens to invoke the Insurrection Act, which is a way around Posse Comitatus, where he can arguably, on his own authority and over the objection of governors upon a presidential finding that the conditions for an Insurrection Act uh, invocation exist, he can take control federalize the National Guard, or deploy regular army troops into cities. So, number one, that's incredibly controversial all on its own. And right when he made the threat, he made the threat to invoke the Insurrection Act about 20 minutes before he did his walk over to St. John's Episcopal Church, where federal troops and where federal law enforcement had just attacked, violently attacked, uh, peaceful protesters to clear the way for Trump. So what did that do? That sent a message of number one, uh, Trump is saying he's willing to use his statutory and constitutional authority, if even over governor's objections, to invoke the uh, Insurrection Act and to exert his control over uh, troops putting down civil unrest. And number two, in the one area where his administration had immediate control over uh, protests, they violently attacked peaceful protesters. So now you're beginning to see why number three is happening, which is all kinds of resistance from retired military, General Mattis, uh, Mike Mullen, many others going, no, do not. This is, this is deeply disturbing because one of the th- there's an, and I'll, I'll wrap with this, there's an internal problem and an external problem the military would have here. Internal problem the military is remarkably diverse. Um, people do not get recruited to join the United States Army to bash in, to, to charge peaceful protesters in the United States of America. They are recruited into the United States Army to defend the United States Constitution and not to attack peaceful protesters. It would be remarkably divisive within the military to activate and federalize troops and use them on the way Trump already used his authority over federal uh, law enforcement. That, and number two, the external problem is the military, for a lot of reasons, is the single most trusted institution, public institution in the United States, and it's not close. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is because it's one of the most remarkably diverse institutions in the United States. Uh, number two, for decades since its low point after Vietnam, it has been scrupulously nonpartisan and committed to discipline and excellence. The military does not want to risk that public trust and a by being deployed over the objections of local officials into the cities of America. It doesn't want that. And so what you're seeing is, and I'm what you're seeing is a, a lot of people outside the military are no longer in the chain of command saying no. And there are a lot of people inside the military who are doing some kind of risky things or inside the chain of command to express their disagreement. I mean, when Mark Esper came out, Secretary of Defense came out and said, don't invoke the Insurrection Act. It's a highly unusual move from a cabinet official to to provide his advice to the president that publicly. Also, you have seen people like the chief of staff uh, or the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying to, sending a message out to all troops, your job is to protect the Constitution. 
including the right of peaceful protest, um, which was a, a, a quite the quite the statement made the very day after that walk to St. John's Episcopal Church. So this is a this is a very seminal moment, I think, in civil military relations. If the president invokes the Insurrection Act, if unrest continues and the president invokes the Insurrection Act over the objection of governors and mayors, that is going to create a, a real problem uh, in this country and, and, and create a real tension in civil military relations. And I, I hope that he is, is restrained either by he's either he's restrains himself or somebody restrains him because uh, that I think that's a, that would be a dangerous moment and not because the military is ill-disciplined or inherently dangerous, but because it creates a fracture uh, that it, it's it's activating the military in conditions that the military was not designed to be activated. Thank you so much for all of that, David, for your service and for helping us understand this crucially important issue. And General Mattis's statements that you mentioned can be found in the Atlantic magazine recently, and we'll post that in the chat box. And uh, very grateful for that insight. Janae, we have a series of questions from our friends about pending reforms. Trey Suresh Kumar asks, what laws can be passed to make the Constitution serve all people more equally? Mark Thomas asked specifically, there's a bill now pending in Congress called the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. The bill is being held up in debate over whether to include minor injuries as a violation, how do existing legal standards consider define minor injuries. Maybe you could take up some of those and also some of the legislation that LDF is supporting to bring reform in the wake of recent tragedies. Certainly. Um, I think what this conversation and, and the events around us proves uh, just quite poignantly is that the, the crisis of policing is really a hydra. There's there are so many aspects to it to tackle, to bring reform, to bring uh, the needed justice, to instill confidence in communities of color in particular, that we have to attack it from multiple angles. So we are supporting the Emmett Till Act. We're supporting um, the, the uh, end of qualified immunity. We're also supporting more national oversight of police departments. It, it's, it's fascinating that the officer, Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd, had 18 other disciplinary complaints. And we you know, have no way of knowing about those complaints in states like New York, where you have laws like 50A that protect an officer's disciplinary record from public uh, disclosure. So it's very difficult to regulate a profession when there's such a deep lack of transparency and there are different regulations and rules that pertain to the over 18,000 law enforcement agencies that exist in this country. There needs to be federalized oversight of this profession. You know, as you know, as lawyers, if any one of us were to be disbarred in a particular state and then go try to get barred in another state, we would have to disclose that disbarment to the new state and let them know that there was something that caused our disbarment. That state would then take that into serious consideration. And frankly, the chances of us getting uh, uh, entry in that state, the new state, would probably be quite slim. Quite differently, police officers don't even have to move to another state they can be discharged from a police department because of egregious misconduct and then go to a neighboring police department 
or a police department in another state and be hired. That's because there's no transparency in disciplinary records. So one of the other pieces of legislation that we're calling for is the creation of a national database of police misconduct. It is important that we make informed decisions about the people we are charging and we are paying as taxpayers to protect and serve us. But just like Professor Bell said, when we are at the point where we're talking about qualified immunity or we're talking about reporting misconduct, we're already too late. We're already past a point where we should be as a society. That means that our law enforcement officers have broken the trust that we've uh, placed in them to protect and serve us. There are other areas of law that also need reform in addition to qualified immunity. And I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the case of Breonna Taylor. Today, she would have turned 27 years old. This is a young woman who was an EMT worker, an essential worker, whose life was taken because of racialized police violence. And I say that because there was an evolution of the doctrine of, of uh, uh, announcing your knock before entering a home. So under the Fourth Amendment, uh, there's something known as the Castle Doctrine that was established in 1995 in a case called Wilson versus Arkansas. And as the name suggests, a person's home is considered their castle. Law enforcement is not allowed to enter a home without announcing itself and giving the occupant an opportunity to allow entry in a peaceful manner. But often law enforcement are asking for no knock entry warrants, which is the one that was used in the Breonna Taylor case that allows them without announcing themselves to engage in uh, uh, sometimes quite brutal and violent forcible entry of the premises. In her case, we understand law enforcement officers sprayed her home with bullets without any announcement of their presence. And it's those types of reforms that can prevent that egregious harm to human life, uh, to the, the violence against black bodies that is committed on a routine basis. That is another area of reform that is critically important, not only doctrinally, but also through the legislatures. Thank you so much for that and for noting the connection between the doctrine of no-knock entry and the death of Brianna Taylor. And we will post those no-knock cases if we can find them during the chat as well. Monica Bell, many, many questions about legal reform. Mary Izadi asked, would reform in criminal liability be more effective in having a deterrent effect on police officers and the discriminatory conduct versus reform in qualified immunity that will only serve to create civil liability, which does not directly impact police departments, understanding that you're calling our attention to more structural forces that create bias. Are there particular legal reforms, either legislative or doctrinal in the courts, that you think could be constructive? Uh, so I actually just wanted to check one thing. Was Ted Shaw going to go? Oh, forgive me. I'm that? so sorry. Yes. Thank you very much for keeping me on target. Ted, my apologies. And I'll ask That's the same okay, question. I, I wait. <laughs> no, 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 we've, we've got to keep in the right order. I'll ask the same question to you because basically our, our questioners are very eager for all of your thoughts about what statutory and doctrinal reforms you think would be most constructive. Well, we, we've been talking about statutory reform with respect to uh, qualified immunity, um, uh, other legal reforms. Uh, you know, I think that 
um, as I alluded to, the Supreme Court ought to revisit um, uh, Lyons case and open up the door to more um, uh, uh, regulation of police departments. Um, uh, I think that would be a good thing. Um, but some of this is, I think, uh, uh, really public policy stuff. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important uh, that the relationship between police departments and uh, black communities change in fundamental ways. I said before that I think police departments uh, often have a, an occupation mentality, and I referenced the war on drugs, which I think is a hugely important context um, for how uh, police departments or individual police offices um, interact and how they perceive their, their role. Uh, uh, you know, we haven't talked about the, uh, the militarization uh, of uh, police departments in recent years. Uh, the Obama administration walked some of that back, but under the Trump administration, once again, um, they have been militarized uh, in ways that I think um, open up opportunities for more confrontations with uh, peaceful protesters, for example. Um, that's problematic. Um, and I think that, and I'm not sure how to do this, but I can't help but not, uh, I can't help um, mentioning the, the ways in which uh, white individuals who interact with police departments um, and who are accused of crimes um, are treated, or even if it's not a matter of being accused of crimes. My wife reminds me all the time about when Dylan Roof was arrested after he murdered nine African-Americans in church in Charleston, South Carolina, on his way to the police station. They stopped and bought him hamburgers. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Black folks, when they get um, arrested by the police, don't get hamburgers. <laughs> uh, uh, I also uh, think about the ways in which uh, protesters have been interacting with law enforcement, and they feel, uh, with respect to this, uh, uh, the virus, um, white protesters, armed to the teeth, feel safe and comfortable and within their rights citing the Second Amendment, um, and the Second Amendment does exist, that's another conversation, but walking right on up to law enforcement, uh, their faces contorted with rage and anger within inches of these individuals screaming, uh, there's no black person who would do that and get away with it that I see. So the ways in which we interact and the police interact with people, um, uh, you know, are color-coded uh, in important respects. What do we do about that? Well, uh, I don't have all of the answers. I know that we have to be conscious of these disparities. Um, and, um, uh, you know, they, you know, Black folks are often gaslighted when we talk about uh, these kind of inequities, these kind of inequalities. Uh, the gaslighting has to stop. I think that's one of the things that as Judge McKee indicated, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how hopeful I am, but one thing that we are seeing is more white people marching and appearing to get it. How long that's going to last, I don't know. 
but uh, I, I do feel that that's a cause for hope um, uh, as opposed to uh, despair. Thank you for your service. As head of LDF, Ben Weirin asked, what is LDF? Again, I missed this. This is the Legal Defense and Education Fund, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, which Ted Shaw led with great distinction and which Janae now serves with great distinction. Monica Bell, you've, you've heard so much to bring together questions about what legal, statutory, and doctrinal reforms you'd support. Lots of questions about the balance. Uh, Ted Shaw just mentioned the Second Amendment, the balance between First and Second Amendment rights of protest, as well as some pending lawsuits against the police for targeting reporters, as well as for discriminatory enforcement of curfews. So please take up any strands of those that you think would be most constructive. Yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you for the question. Uh, I think one of the main, uh, I guess there, there are a few themes in the types of reforms I would support. Um, and one of the major themes is that it not look, that those reforms not just look at policing as if it's a freestanding injustice and a freestanding entity. So one of the questions in the chat box that I kind of wanted to get to was this idea of, you know, how do we come to grips with racism in America? And one of of the things that is both heartening, one of the things that's heartening about the moment we're in right now is that more white people are recognizing um, the grave, the gravity of um, racial injustice that uh, black communities face. However, I worry a bit that that uh, conception of what racism looks like is too localized. It's too much about policing on its own and it's too much about particular sort of physical violence when there is structural violence and symbolic violence through the through mechanisms of residential segregation and a lack of educational opportunity etc that are actually intertwined with a lot of what we see in policing so we need a much more comprehensive racial justice agenda and we can't be satisfied with tinkering around inside internally to policing so um so what might some of those other pieces look like so and thinking about coming to grips. Um, history and what has happened across history is really important. And very few Americans actually know much about the particular aspects of slavery, about particular aspects of the history of lynching and how it was legally supported and how police were tacitly a part of this. Very few people actually understand how uh, in times when black people have tried to integrate predominantly white neighborhoods that there isn't just private violence, but also state-supported and state-allowed violence that has kept those communities separate. And that's in so much of what we actually observe in terms of racial inequality now is tethered not to, you know, poor choices that Black people made. It's not this kind of neoliberal world in which there's just been a lot of choice. It's actually kind of the constraint and um, it is all supported by a legal framework. And so uh, educating people about those things, making them core parts of our curriculum, those are reforms that I think are really important because I think as um, the judge and as Ted Shaw was, say was saying, it's like, I have hope, but it's truncated a bit by 
having a knowledge of history, having seen movements evolve over time, and having been excited in the past about reforms that were possible, but that never quite happened. And I think one of the reasons they don't is because we we tinker around with, thought, with law without really changing the ideology underlying the law. And one of the key ways in which we do that is by tearing down the enduring structures of racism, like segregation, like a complete ignorance of our, of our history, both recent and deep in the past. And so I really need, like I, I'm only really gonna be excited about reforms that dig into those issues um, and, and aren't just kind of, kind of minimal doctrinal changes, although those incremental changes are of course also important. Thanks for that call for powerful, meaningful, structural reform rather than minimal doctrinal changes. Thanks also for the crucial emphasis on the importance of teaching people about our difficult history and the Constitution. And of course, that's what the Constitution Center is trying to do with programs like this. All of these programs and our educational resources are archived on the interactive Constitution. And if you click on the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments, you'll find early drafts of those amendments as well as all of the historical and, and contemporary learning that we can possibly collect uh, so that citizens can educate themselves. In this extraordinary experiment of the National Town Hall, I'm so struck that we've had up to 1,400 viewers, friends participating in the town hall, and we have 224 questions. What a wonderful example of people asking and engaging. This is going to be the last round for each of us because the only rule of these programs is they end on time. So David, I'll ask for your closing thoughts. There are a series of questions about the military state balance and also about the rights of protesters and the police. Uh, there's a, there is a lawsuit uh, filed in Minnesota that says that the police targeted reporters. The ACLU of Southern California is suing about the draconian curfews put in place. Other questioners asked if the military can be used about protesters. Your thoughts on your concluding thoughts on, on which whatever those themes you find most uh, meaningful. Yeah, you know, going on the, the military point, the National Guard, when it's under the control of the governors, is essentially operating less as an instrument of the broader United States military and more as a, um, a, a police force under the control of the governors of the states. And they're going to have all of the same, they're going to have all of the same uh, constitutional obligations on the National Guard that are on the police and their interactions with citizens. And that number one obligation is to protect the constitutional rights of the citizens of the state or of the city. And that includes protecting the right of protest. Um, now, the right of protest obviously does not include violent activity. Uh, and, and, and there are curfews that are sometimes necessary when violence breaks out. But I have the same analysis that applies to curfews. It often applies to, say, for example, shelter at home orders in a pandemic. An order that is valid when given is not necessarily, is not permanently valid. It is not indefinitely valid. And so extending curfews beyond their, uh, beyond the time in which they're necessary is a constitutional problem, for example. But let me, let me sort of close by uh, planting my civil libertarian, flying my civil libertarian flag for a moment on, on what can we do from a policy basis more broadly. We've talked about qualified immunity. I want to 
very briefly bring up two other things, and I'm cribbing this from my friend Jane Coaston at Vox. Um, I'll call it the Jane Coaston plan. Three points in qualified immunity. Two, reform police unions. Police unions bargain for two broad categories of things. One is uh, wages and benefits. How much money you're going to p- get paid, what's your pension, etc. They also bargain about the terms and conditions of their employment, which includes discipline, which includes how much, okay, what are they, how can they be held accountable for misconduct. That is something that often essentially removes from broader public policy debates the actual way in which you hold tr- uh, uh, cops accountable and puts it into a collective bargaining process that is often, uh, you know, it's one of the things that almost you talk about, uh, you know, Professor Bell's talking about um, public knowledge. How many people know about collective bargaining agreements for police unions? I mean, <laughs> one out of a thousand. So reform police unions. And here's the last one. We need a fewer criminal laws in this country. We need to criminalize fewer things. You know, Eric Garner was died. What was the what was the predicate for arresting him? Selling Lucy cigarettes. Not to get all libertarian and everything, but I feel like I should be able if I have five extra cigarettes to sell them without violating the law. I mean, you know, we 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 criminalize so many things and that you know what that does is it increases the amount of citizen police interaction dramatically. And we need to think about what are the things that we really want to say that are so egregious that your violation of this norm can lead to your imprisonment. We really need to have a hard, hard conversations about that. Uh, and so uh, those are, you know, that's, that's the Coaston plan in qualified immunity. Um, reform police unions, and let's think about fewer uh, criminal laws. That doesn't solve everything, doesn't solve most things, but I kind of view it as a decent start. Thank you so much, David French. Janae Nelson, your final thoughts. Well, I want to encourage everyone who's listening, and I'm so encouraged by the fact that there are over a thousand people here, to encourage us in this moment to completely rethink public safety, to think about how we spend money as taxpayers to fund a system that is fundamentally broken. None of us is suggesting that we don't want some form of safety, that there doesn't need to be some form of control or some form of law enforcement, but we have invested so much in a very particular way of policing society that is not working for so many in society and is creating divisions that are deep and destructive. And you may hear calls for defunding the police. And I want to unpack very quickly what that means, at least for the Legal Defense Fund, what that means. That does not mean that there can't be a a safety mechanism. What it means is that we put too much money in social support, I mean, too much money away from social support services and not enough money investing in the mental support services, the social support, the educational resources, and the things that can make society truly great. When we think about the amount of money, for example, that the city of New York spent in settling police misconduct cases in the year of 2018, we spent $230 million settling police misconduct cases. The city of Chicago spent $113 million settling those types of cases. Imagine if we used that money to invest in public schools, to invest in social services, to invest in ways 
to build and lift society and to take people out of the margins and into the center. We wouldn't have the problem of policing that, that we have today if we were to redirect those resources. So I encourage us to think about whether we actually need a person with a gun enforcing traffic laws, whether we need police at schools to ensure that children behave safely. My answer is we absolutely don't. This is the time to rethink, completely reimagine public safety in America. Thank you very much for that, Janae Nelson. Uh, Ted Shaw, Shaw, the last words in this memorable discussion are to you. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you again for uh, allowing me to participate. Um, uh, you know, I, what uh, Janae Nelson just said made me think about, um, you know, uh, Great Britain. Um, they have law enforcement offices, uh, they don't have the uh, shootings we have and the, um, and the numbers we have uh, because their first instinct isn't uh, to shoot people. Um, so we should rethink um, uh, policing. Uh, but I also wanna lastly connect what has happened uh, with this long history of killings and deaths of unarmed black people. I wanna, put in here also, it's not just men, it's women also, um, as we know, because of Brianna Taylor, but we can mention a whole bunch of other people. But I wanna draw a line between the police officer who knelt so cavalierly on the neck um, of George Floyd and Floyd and took his life. I wanna draw a line between him um, and the individuals who killed uh, Ahmaud Arbery. Um, uh, we just got news yesterday or more information about uh, what one of them said after he stood over his body uh, and uh, want to draw a line between um, the, the ways in which um, private individuals who take on the task of, of policing also act out in ways that take the lives of black folks. Um, they're connected and we can't forget about the events that are going on in this country now with respect to policing. And at the same time, uh, we need to talk about changing laws and practices uh, that go to how um, private individuals um, act um, and assume um, the color of law, even if they are actually not law enforcement officers, um, and take the lives of Black people. Uh, so thank you for this discussion. Thank you for uh, the, um, uh, the opportunity to participate. Uh, there's a lot to despair about, but we have to choose hope. That's my own personal belief. It's not that, you know, we, we don't have things to be uh, hopeless about. Uh, but that's not a viable choice. And so uh, thank you for what you do in, um, in focusing, refocusing us uh, on hope. Beautiful words in which to end a memorable discussion. I need to thank all of you, wonderful panelists, uh, Monica Bell, David French, Janae Nelson, uh, Ted Shaw, 
and Judge McKee for a memorable and civil and inspiring discussion. We will continue to hold these discussions. Several of you are already asking for them. Our next one uh, is scheduled on June 30th in co-sponsorship with The Atlantic Magazine. We're going to hold a symposium that will continue to explore uh, the issues that we've taken up today. That'll be June 30th at uh, 7 p.m. So stay involved with the Constitution Center, stay engaged, uh, and most importantly of all, continue to educate yourself about the Constitution. To all of our panelists and friends, thank you so much. Stay safe. See you soon. Bye. Today's show was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Maggie Gillespie, Lana Ulrich, and the Constitutional Content Team. This week's episode of Live at the National Constitution Center is a crossover with our companion podcast, We the People. All of us at the National Constitution Center are here to learn with you by continuing to convene these urgently important constitutional conversations in the weeks, months, and years ahead. You can find these conversations every week on Live at the NCC and also on We the People. Please subscribe to both podcasts and continue to educate yourself about the Constitution. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.